0: Psalm 90, note again the heading, A Prayer of Moses, the Man of God. Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever, thou hast formed the earth and the world. Even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Thou turnest man to destruction and sayest, Return, ye children of men. For a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night. Thou carriest them away as with a flood. They are as a sleep. In the morning they are like grass which groweth up. In the morning it flourisheth and groweth up. In the evening it is cut down and withered. For we are consumed by thine anger, and by thy wrath are we troubled. Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins, in the light of thy countenance. For all our days are passed away in thy wrath. We spend our years as a tale that is told. The days of our years are threescore years and ten, and if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is their strength labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off, and we fly away. Who knoweth the power of thine anger? Even according to thy fear, so is thy wrath. So teach us to number our days, that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long, and let it repent thee concerning thy servants. O satisfy us early with thy mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days wherein thou hast afflicted us and the years wherein we have seen evil. Let thy work appear unto thy servants and thy glory unto their children and let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Yea, the work of our hands establish thou it. Amen. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. I want to call your attention in particular to the petition that is found in verse 14. Here is what Moses prays for. Here is what he desires. O satisfy us early with thy mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Satisfy us early with thy mercy that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. What do you think a Christian has in common with a drunkard or a drug addict or a person who's been married and divorced and married again and divorced several times? or even a man about to commit suicide. At first glance, you might not think that a Christian has anything in common with those kinds of people. After all, salvation is a powerful force that lifts us from the fearful pit and the miry clay. Outside of a common humanity and a lingering sin nature that Christians try to keep subdued, you may think that you have nothing in common with those in the world that are hooked on their vices. Truth of the matter is, however, we actually do have something in common with these people I've just described. Something that is good and wholesome and right, if it's rightly identified and sought, Something that is so basic to every human being that you would have to identify it as a legitimate part of our being human. The thing that I have in mind now is quite simply the desire to be happy. The desire to be happy. Everyone possesses that kind of desire. The thing that differentiates Christians from others would be the things that are pursued in order to see the desire for happiness realized. But the desire itself is common to the Christian and the non-Christian alike. The drunkard indulges in his drink because he thinks it will make him happy, or at least it will make him less miserable than he would be otherwise. Same thing holds true for the drug addict. Drugs bring pleasure to the flesh. Initially, drugs bring great pleasure to the flesh. It isn't until a sinner is hooked on drugs that he discovers how hard it becomes to maintain his pleasure. And eventually, his happiness, like the drunkard, becomes relative to his misery. In other words, his happiness is gauged by being less miserable than he otherwise would be without his drugs. The man or the woman who goes from one partner to another, being unfaithful, marital infidelity, such people are pursuing a quest for happiness. And indeed, how often do you hear it portrayed when you see it on movies, TV, what have you, a divorce taking place, and the argument given is, uh, uh, dear, I just, uh, I just want to be happy. So I, I, I've got to leave you and try another partner, see if that might make me happy. And even the man who's contemplating suicide is weighing whether or not things could possibly be worse than they are in this life. He's taking a gamble that in killing himself, he'll find greater happiness than what he finds in his miserable life in this world. Oh, the world bears a clear testimony to the truth that happiness is hard to gain in this sin-cursed world, especially isn't hard to gain apart from God and Christ. Not even those who have had everything this world can offer are able to find true and lasting happiness. So King Solomon, and what do you know about King Solomon? You know that he was wise beyond all others. You also know of him that God bestowed on him great honor and riches so that he had it all. He had everything. And yet listen to what he says in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse 8. All things are full of labor. Man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. And a little later, chapter 5 and verse 10 in Ecclesiastes. He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loveth abundance with increase. This is also vanity. And my, we can take it from a man who speaks by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but who also speaks by experience. Some have suggested that that's the very reason Solomon wrote this book, to show from a worldly perspective, so to speak, how dissatisfying the world is, even to those who have everything that the world can offer. The Christian, by way of contrast, is able to find happiness. He's able to find happiness above and beyond the world's happiness, and he's able to find happiness that is not contingent upon the ever-shifting circumstances of life. Isaiah gives us a picture of this happiness, even during a time when happiness would not ordinarily be found. In Isaiah 58, in verse 11, we read, And the Lord shall guide thee continually, and satisfy thy soul in drought, and make fat thy bones, and thou shalt be like a watered garden, and like a spring of water, whose waters fail not. Makes me wonder if the Lord Jesus maybe was alluding to that text When he said to the woman at the well in John chapter 4 and verse 14, But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. If this be the case, if Christians are to be as that watered garden whose waters never fail, who possess within themselves a well of water springing up into everlasting life, how do we account then for so many Christians that seem to be so unhappy with life? It almost seems like an unorthodox thing to admit. But if many, perhaps even most, Christians are honest, they would have to acknowledge that in spite of their blessings and in spite of their hope, they go through long seasons of not being happy. Now, some will argue, to be sure, that happiness should not be the Christian's primary concern. And in a sense, I get that. We should be more concerned about holiness. We should be more concerned about Our duty and our obedience, some would say. But if you look into the matter a little deeper, I think you'll discover that holiness and obedience, they can't be gained without happiness accompanying them. Some people, you know, draw a a false dichotomy between joy and holiness. You can be one or the other, but you can't be both. So the thinking goes, and since I'm supposed to be uh, holy as a matter of priority, then happiness doesn't matter. Holiness is the main thing. I think, however, the Bible lays the axe to that notion. And in fact, if you look at the desire of Moses in the petition of our text, you discover that happiness is his aim, Rather interesting to note that, especially when you consider the title, A Prayer of Moses, the Man of God. Of course, we know, don't we, that Moses was a man of God. Okay, how does a man of God pray? What should a man of God pray for? Satisfy us early, he prays, with thy mercy. Why, you might ask, why does he pray for the people of God to be satisfied early with God's mercy? And the answer is given in the very next statement in the verse, satisfy us early with thy mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Do you not see in this petition and the aim behind the petition, the desire for happiness, for satisfaction? Indeed, the desire for lasting happiness, that we may rejoice and be glad for a brief instant. All our days. All our days. Our very first Schroeder Catechism question and answer recognizes that desire. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. It's been suggested that the two ideas conveyed in that catechism answer could be merged in such a way as to read it, man's chief end is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. I think something can be said for that. If you're familiar with any of the writings or the sermons of John Piper, and John Piper, uh, I... An unusual man, in many ways a very gifted speaker, author, Uh, one you have to read, I guess, with uh, a little bit of caution. Uh, He might be, uh, oh, how would you put it, paints with a broader brush than some of the rest of us do in terms of what he's willing to accept uh, in Christian fellowship. But anyway, in many respects, the man is brilliant, and if you're familiar with any of his writings or sermons, you know that this kind of emphasis on Christian joy, or Christian, to use his term, Christian hedonism, it dominates his ministry. I've heard him describe the essence of his ministry by a statement that I would agree with. The statement goes, something like this, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. I think a case can be made to bear that out. It would certainly appear from our text that Moses himself would be in agreement with that kind of sentiment. Hence his petition in verse 14, "...O satisfy us early with thy mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days." I'd like to look at that petition this afternoon in the light of the theme on the Christian's desire for a happy life. If this text presents anything to us at all, (coughs) it certainly conveys to us the message that the Christian can and should realize his desire for a happy life. And the question I want to raise and then answer is simply this. How can the Christian realize that desire for a happy life? Well, consider with me, first of all, if he's going to realize that desire, he must acknowledge the validity of such a desire. The Christian might be tempted to think that he needs to rise above that kind of desire. After all, isn't the pursuit of happiness the very thing that dominates the hearts of those that are unsaved? I said a moment ago that even sinners are driven to do the most senseless things that lead to their own destruction, and they are driven, nevertheless, by their pursuit of happiness. Should this be the Christian's desire too, Or should he set himself apart Rise above it, so to speak. Shouldn't obedience and the glory of God rank as higher priorities in the Christian's life? Doesn't it seem just a little bit self-centered to suggest that any feeling or any emotion should dominate the Christian's life? The thing to keep in mind here is what I touched upon a moment ago, which is that you can't accomplish obedience and you cannot bring glory to God without being a happy servant of Christ. I remember some time ago, this just comes to my mind right now, when I used to have some email correspondence with Steve Dean. Some of you remember Steve Dean and a great gifted preacher of the gospel. And I remember that um, one of Steve's closing signatures would always be Christ's happy warrior, Steve Dean. I I like that focus. I like what he's after in that. Uh, A happy servant. Even a happy warrior for Jesus Christ. And certainly one of the Clear indications that being glad is a valid desire is found in the fact that it's something that Moses prays for in our text. Oh, satisfy us early with thy mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. You've heard me say it often, and I'll say it again today, that you know you're praying in the will of God when you are praying the prayers that are given to us by God. And here in Psalm 90 is such a prayer. O oh, satisfy us early with thy mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. I look at a statement like that. I see that it's a petition in prayer, and it leads me to conclude this is God's will. It's something, therefore, I should pray for. This is conveyed to us even more forcefully when you consider the command that Paul gives to the Philippians. And note that it comes to them with the force of a command. And keep in mind the context for Philippians, the context in which Paul wrote this epistle. This is a prison epistle. Here a man sits unjustly being arrested and uh, held uh, in a Roman dungeon, and yet he writes in Philippians 4 and verse 4 Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. I don't think Paul was commanding them to do something that he himself couldn't render. The word rejoice could be translated by the phrase be glad. Be glad in the Lord always. And again I say be glad. And you should note that the verb tense in both instances are present tense verbs, which in the Greek language speaks of continuous action. So we find as strong an emphasis as you could find on the continuity of this command. In other words, this is a command that we must constantly be rendering obedience to, be always rejoicing, Paul writes, and to stress it again, he states it again. And again, I say, be always rejoicing. The tense of the verb with the term always added, and then a repeating of the phrase indicates to us that being glad in the Lord must be something that the Christian is giving heed to at all times. Easier said than done, isn't it? Don't we know? And if you look at other references in the New Testament, you discover that it doesn't matter what the circumstances of life are throwing your way. This command to be glad in the Lord must be heeded no matter what. So James writes in his epistle to his afflicted brethren, chapter 1 and verse 2, My brethren, Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Peter writes in his first epistle, Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. And Paul to the Romans, Romans 5 and verse 3, And not only so, but we glory, or literally we boast, or we joy in tribulations also. Knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And we see the psalmist in Psalm 34 and verse 1 saying, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. You begin to see, I trust, that happiness or joy or rejoicing is to be the Christian's portion at all times. Circumstances of life notwithstanding. And you see that being glad in the Lord comes to us with the force of a command. If ever there was a time when Augustine's prayer would be appropriate, It would be with regard to our obedience to be joyful in the Lord. Augustine once prayed, Lord, command what you will, but give what you command. Our text reflects that desire. O satisfy us early with thy mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Would you notice that the psalmist in this instance is not merely praying for mercy. He's praying for the effect of mercy to be ministered to his soul. Oh, satisfy us with thy mercy. He wants the effect of mercy to be satisfaction. And he wants the effect to serve the purpose of making the people of God glad all their days. So the Christian's desire for happiness is a valid desire. As Christians, were to align our desires with God's commands. That really shouldn't be too difficult a thing to do in this case. God's desire for us and his command to us is that we find satisfaction in him that we may be glad all our days. Well, consider with me next that if we're going to realize this desire, this valid desire for a happy life, Two, we must confront the challenges that stand in our way. And oh, there are challenges that stand in our way. The very fact that the psalmist would pray, O satisfy us early with thy mercy, that indicates to us, doesn't it, that satisfaction in the Lord is something that has to be sought because it's something that's not always experienced. And indeed, it seems that it can be rather elusive at times. It's not our portion continually the way it ought to be. It's something that must be sought, and so we find Moses praying for it. And don't we know this in our own experience? We're supposed to be glad all our days, but don't we have to admit that we go on sometimes in seemingly endless days without being glad in the Lord. If you look at the setting of our text, you get the idea that gladness was not something that exactly dominated the heart of Moses or the children of Israel. Look at how the psalm reads, beginning in verse 7, For we are consumed by thine anger, and by thy wrath are we troubled. Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins, in the light of thy countenance. For all our days are passed away in thy wrath. We spend our years as a tale that is told. The days of our years are threescore years and ten, and if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is their strength labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off, and we fly away. Who knoweth the power of thine anger? Even according to thy fear, so is thy wrath. This is not exactly the setting of the people of God being glad all their days, is it? It's a setting of being aware of sin. It's a setting of experiencing spiritual barrenness. It's a setting of life transpiring so quickly that it becomes like a tale that is told. And the Lord in this setting is conspicuous by the sense of his absence. And so Moses prays in verse 13, Return, O Lord, how long? Here is a barrier then that must be overcome. Our lack of spiritual sensitivity and our hearts being dominated by the sense of our sins and our shortcomings. Our lives wasting away in a spiritual wilderness that seems so mundane and fruitless? When you think about it, it becomes easy to reason this way. How can I be satisfied in God when I'm so dissatisfied with myself? How can I really believe that God would be satisfied with me when I can see so plainly, so much within my soul that God couldn't possibly be satisfied with? And if I don't think God could be satisfied with me because I'm not satisfied with me, then how can I be satisfied with God? This becomes a major obstacle then that has to be overcome. Another obstacle that must be overcome is the Christian's wandering heart that tries in vain to find satisfaction in all the wrong ways and from all the wrong sources. Listen to the Lord's complaint about his people that he conveys through the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 2 and verse 13, for my people have committed two evils, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. What tragic irony that the people of God must own. They turned from the Lord who has the power to refresh and renew and revive. They turned from the only source from whom satisfaction and gladness can come in order to drink from a well that contains sand and gravel mixed with muddy water, as it were. Certainly when we find ourselves in such a condition, we have need to pray, Return, O Lord, how long? And we have need to pray, O satisfy us early with thy mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. It's certainly not the Lord's will or the Lord's desire that his people find it so hard to find satisfaction in him. The fault must be traced to us, we're the ones that hew out the broken cisterns. We're the ones that take the blessings of God so much for granted that we come to loathe his blessings much the same way the children of Israel eventually loathed the manna in the wilderness. It remains for us then to consider the remedy. We've seen that the desire for happiness is a valid desire, It's God's will for our lives. It is so much his will that he commands it. But there are barriers to overcome. Our carnal lusts and worldly wanderings and hard hearts bring us to the place where we have to pray. Oh, satisfy us early with thy mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Well, let's think then for a moment finally that if we're to see this desire realized for happy lives, we must appropriate the means for realizing this desire. And the most obvious means is revealed to us in the text, and it's quite simply the means of prayer. The psalmist is praying, O satisfy us early with thy mercy, that we may be glad all our days. Underlying this prayer, of course, is the honest acknowledgement that the people of God were not happy and were not rejoicing. You could say that there is an element of confession of sin implied by the honesty of this petition. Underlying this prayer is also the knowledge that God is the source from which this happiness must come. He is the one that can make us glad I said earlier that this petition is not simply a petition for mercy. It's a petition for mercy, or more literally, the loving kindness of God, to have a desired effect upon the hearts of God's people. This certainly demonstrates to us the absolute sovereignty of God in salvation and over the blessings that we enjoy in salvation left to ourselves, we will not rejoice. We will not be glad. We will not find satisfaction, not even in the Lord's mercy. We need the Lord, therefore, not only to minister his mercy to us, but we need him to minister to us the effects of that mercy O Lord, let thy mercy penetrate and soften my heart. Let thy mercy fill and thrill my soul. Let thy mercy satisfy or fulfill the deepest longings of my heart, that I may rejoice and be glad all my days. Another means of grace we must utilize in order to realize this desire is the Lord's house, church, Right here, what we're doing today is another means that we must take advantage of, utilize it to that end. One of our calls to worship is taken from Psalm 36 and verse 8, which reads, They shall be abundantly satisfied with the fatness of thy house, and thou shalt make them drink of the river of thy pleasures. I love to think of the Lord's house in this respect. This is a place where we come to worship and meet with Christ and the effect of coming to the Lord's house should be that our hearts are made glad. Too often I'm afraid church is thought of as just another burden, just another weight that must be added to the to-do list. If that's what church becomes, then Church has lost something, lost in large measure its meaning and purpose. It should be a place where our desire for gladness is strengthened and realized all the more. I remember a number of years ago, this is probably longer than I would care to calculate, it was at a prayer meeting in Greenville where I was attending, visiting. And I remember on this particular occasion, I was greeted by Jeremiah Mooney, Byron Mooney's son, our minister in Trinity, Alabama. Jeremiah at the time was a freshman at BJU, and it was good to see him. And when I shared with a lady in the church, the family where I used to stay, the Panosians, I had mentioned this to One Panosian, that I had seen Jeremiah Mooney. She shared with me something that I thought was interesting about Jeremiah. She told me that Jeremiah always seems to be glad in the Lord's house. And I thought to myself at that time, that's a pretty good indication that the church in Greenville is functioning the way it ought to function. Oh, that the Lord's people would so view the Lord's house that it's seen as a place that makes our hearts glad in the Lord. Another text that reinforces this idea is found uh, in one of the Beatitudes of the Psalms. Psalm 65 in verse 4, it reads, Blessed is the man whom thou choosest, And cause us to approach unto thee, that he may dwell in thy courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of thy house, even of thy holy temple. So church is yet another means of grace to satisfy our longing hearts and to help make us and keep us glad all our days. One of the reasons, of course, that church can and should function this way is because the means of grace are ministered at church. It is in church each Sunday where God's word is preached. That is a means of grace that can make our hearts glad. Reflecting on what we did this morning, our time around the Lord's table, this is where we become convinced that God accepts us in spite of ourselves. It's at this table that we're reminded that Christ has redeemed us through the shedding of his blood. Here is where I see how God can be just and the justifier of those that believe in Jesus. I believe that God can be satisfied with me because I'm reminded that God is satisfied with his son. I'm reminded that Christ came into this world to represent me, and throughout his life in this world, his Father was satisfied with him. I'm also reminded that he paid the price for my sins and bore my condemnation, so that there is now, therefore, no condemnation to those that are in Jesus. Around the Lord's table we find opportunity to examine our hearts, plead the blood of Christ over our sins, and then appropriate by faith anew and afresh the blood of Christ for the renewal of our salvation. Here in God's house and around the Lord's table are we especially to drink of the river of God's pleasures and to have our hearts made glad. Oh, let's make this petition of Moses then our own. Oh, satisfy us early with thy mercy that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. May rejoicing and being glad become the default mode to our lives. That really is necessary, you know, if you're going to make any impression on anyone for Christ. If all they see And a Christian is the gloom and the doom and the sadness and the distress over the uh, um, situations in the world. That really doesn't commend Christ all that well. The world needs to see not that you're ignorant or oblivious to those things, but that you're able to rise above them and be glad and rejoicing in spite of them. May we all then be satisfied with the goodness of his house and drink of the river of his pleasures as we remember his love and his grace and his mercy toward us in purchasing us to himself. May this gladness indeed be our portion even as we launch out into this new week. Let's close then in prayer. And let's all pray. O Lord, as we bow now in thy presence, we do so with grateful hearts that thou hast saved us from sin's dominion. Thou hast saved us from sin's condemnation. Thou hast saved us from this present evil world. O Lord, we pray that thou wilt indeed satisfy us early with thy mercy that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. We're not asking, O Lord, for a frivolous kind of gladness, but for that rather which runs very deep and impacts our hearts and governs all that we do and governs even our attitudes and our countenance. So, Lord, hear and answer this prayer for thy people.